Welcome to the Apple of Truth, our bi-weekly podcast where we nerd out about our favorite TV shows. Currently, we're covering every single episode of Good Omens, based on the book by Sir Terry Pratchett and Neil Gaiman. And because we are who we are, we focus on details you didn't need, but for sure deserved. I'm Vero. And I'm Lena. And today we're talking about episode one, In the Beginning. And it is the beginning of something beautiful. It's Sorry. the beginning of the world as we... No? Okay, never well, mind. Well, it kind of is in the episode, but I don't think we're going to go into the episode just yet. Okay. Well, before we start out, welcome back, everybody. It's ah! been a long few months, we know, Ooh. but we couldn't be happier that not only some of your listeners have stuck it out with us, but hopefully we're going to get some new people into this. And we still have some patrons. So thank you so much uh, to the people who stayed our patrons through this hiatus and who are so incredible that we actually met some us. of them we have met most of them at this point yeah you actually have met most of them and you've met one more than i have i am jealous but also i met some that you haven't met and you met some that i haven't met so but you've met more that i haven't met so that is true hint hint dear patrons meet me i mean after lux Ooh. We're going to add a couple more people to that list, right? Right? Wink, wink. So if you don't know, there is a Lucifer convention and we have done all of Lucifer in our previous podcast. That was also under the Apple of Truth, but we did Lucifer haha, because we always do our shows. And there is going to be a convention for Lucifer and there's still tickets at the point of this recording. So if you want to meet us, that's where we'll be. <laughs> Never mind the cast or the creators. Us! We're gonna be there. The fact that it's the main cast. But so, yeah. Joking aside, Lux 2 happening in Birmingham. End of February. Be there or cry alone at home. And then listen to us talk about it afterwards. Wow. I'm sorry. Wow. Yeah, I, ha I have not changed. I'm not sorry. <laughs> Speaking of Something not having right. changed, as per usual, next up we shall have a summary. Good and evil wage a very non-active war for a much younger Earth than one would think, as we meet Xerophel and Crowley, who despite being enemies, work together to prevent Armageddon from starting, but fail due to some unfortunate mishaps. Unfortunate indeed. <laughs> Sadly, for some reason, the Amazon descriptions this time around are in English. So I expect there to be not as many fun shenanigans as we had in the past. I think that the reason for that is because this is an Amazon original. Good. Yeah, probably. Maybe. We'll see. But currently it's all in English and it was not bad. So... Yay! <laughs> okay. Well, since we do not have an obsession this time around, we decided to choose the most British word of the episode. And I've decided to choose a word that was not said by a British person, nor it was not said in a British accent. And I don't think it's, it is definitely not specifically British, but it is something that I could only hear in English accent. It was super weird for me to hear it in American accent, said by John Hamm. It's the word <laughs> Sally. It's the word what? Sully. I do not sully my oh. celestial, <laughs> celestial body with this shit. Probably sully. not this shit. No. It's such a great word. And you only hear it in 
like, do not sully the good name of this person. Actually, when you think about it, it is also in Hamilton. So it, there is another person who says it in American accent. I don't know why it feels like it should be all in English accents. So it, in your brain, it is a British word, despite not having heard it recently in a British accent. Yes, I think it should always be said in a British accent. Okay. If you Google it, you go into Oxford Dictionary. It is used in a sentence they were outraged that anyone should sully their good name well uh interesting pick i <laughs> went very different than you for me the first episode has one and one only possible word choice that can be picked for the most british word of the episode obviously i still had a backup because I'm me. And that is ineffable. Oh, is it? That's just weird for me. And I can't say the word, so that's my new vulnerable. I have so, noted say, in my notes. Say ineffable. In, say ineffable. In, in, ineffable. 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 Well, now that is deliberate. So, and because I'm me, I did three checkpoints for this word, which is mm -hmm. what I think it means, what it actually <laughs> means, And where is it actually coming from? What is the, etym what is etymology. the etymology for this word? So mm. what did I think it means without looking it up? Unexplainable. What does it actually mean after I looked it up? Indescribable, indefinable, unspeakable. Too great or extreme to be expressed or described in words. It can also mean forbidden to be uttered or taboo. Whoa. Mm. So I wasn't wrong, but I also wasn't right. It's more complex than you'd thought. Exactly. It's ineffable. The word itself is ineffable. The word ineffable is ineffable is my favorite. Yeah. yeah. So maybe yep. that's the title of this episode. The word ineffable is ineffable. Where does the word ineffable come from? It comes from Latin. Surprise, surprise. From ineffabilis, which is in, not, effort, to utter, and bilis, able. So not utterable. That is literally the meaning of ineffable. Ineffable. For next time, uh, prepare to be swept off your shoes, because that's a word that I, that's, And you can tell that we are still great at this. Sorry, we have another segment. Please, Lina, take it over. Make me stop talking. And obviously, just as before, we have a facts and fun segment that is mostly taken shamelessly from IMDb. I have loosely selected some bits to keep, some bits to put somewhere else, and some bits to simply never mention. The veterans, the hipsters, the people from the very first episode will remember that we have a very classic format that is director and writer of every episode. So the same should happen here, or so I thought. Director Douglas McKinnon directs every single episode. So this shall be the only time I talk about him. <laughs> Spoiler, he also directs every single episode in season two. Oh, yay! I love his style. He has 36 IMDb credits for directing, including one episode of Sherlock and eight episodes of Doctor Who. And one of those episodes is The Husbands of River Song, which I adore. So, I love that yay. episode so much. 
Most of his credits are for TV shows, with one notable exception, in my opinion, and that is the movie The Flying Scotsman. That is a sports biopic about an actual person, where the cast include Johnny Lee Miller, who people might know from Elementary, Brian Cox and Billy Boyd. Funnily enough, David Tennant was supposed to be in that movie, but had to drop out due to date conflicts. So they were meant to work together earlier on. Mm. Now they are working together. Any chance he directed any of his Doctor Who episodes? Mm, I don't think he was during David's run, no. Mm, I think he was later. So director is not going to reappear in this segment. What about writer? Well, (laughs) writer Neil Gaiman wrote every single episode of season one. Um, And since... Spoilers! There is going to be an actual bonus episode about this man. I shan't say anything more here. Let's get into the random IMDb facts and let's see how many of them, if any, make it into the actual episode. Adam and Eve are being played by black actors. This is in keeping with current scientific thinking, which holds that human life began on the African continent. The Mother Superior states that they are satanic nuns of the Chattering Order of St. Beryl. They are comically named Chattering because they use a lot of words to express themselves. (laughs) Thanks, IMDb. I did not notice that. It gets better. Three of the nuns are named Sister Mary Loquacious, Sister Maria Verbose and Sister Catherine Prolix. The words loquacious, verbose and prolix are all synonyms for long-winded, talkative or wordy. I love this. And any of those three, in my opinion, would have counted as the most British word of the episode. That, yeah, could be, could be. This episode, and to some extent the whole series, references extensively the movie The Omen from 1976, in which an American diplomat, Gregory Peck, is given an orphan child as a replacement for his stillborn son at a hospital that subsequently burns down in a fire. The orphan Damien the name that is being suggested, soon is revealed to be the Antichrist and is rapidly seconded by a menacing Rottweiler. In every scene in which Wensleydale speaks, he uses the word actually. We need to keep an eye out of or an ear out for that because I really want to know if that is true. Mm -hmm. It is true in this episode because he only has this one scene. Mm -hmm. And he does say actually. When Aziraphale's bookshop is first seen, there is a hat on the coat hanger where he hangs his coat. This hat belonged to one of the novel's authors, Sir Terry Pratchett, whose dying wish to fellow author Neil Gaiman was for him to write the series and have it turned into a TV show. And that makes me so sad! I'm literally... (sighs) Tearing up, I know. Chills and everything. Speaking of the bookshop, when drunk at the bookshop, Aziraphale tells Crowley about the end of days when the kraken would rise as the seas boil. Funnily enough, although this event is mentioned in the Bible, in the book of Revelations, the monster is called the Leviathan. What Aziraphale is saying is a reference to Lord Alfred Tennyson's poem, The Kraken. This means that if Aziraphale is telling this, both the book of Revelation and Alfred Tennyson's poem are factually correct. (laughs) In heaven, the sphere of the world that we see is rotating in the wrong way, like in the wrong direction. Interesting. Didn't notice that. And this is the facts and funs for this very first episode. And basically, because we don't have our own previous Leon, the God gives us pretty good previously on Earth in the first scene. (laughs) And not only does she give us a perfect previously on the history of Earth, she also gives us 
the most freeze frame frenzy worthy intro or cold <laughs> open rather of all times. So obviously before I even started listening to her talk, I had to freeze frame through the entire cold open. That's fair. I tried to make out as much as possible. Some bits were not possible. And because I already knew this was going to be long, I did not overdo it. I might overdo it in the future at some other point. So we have the TV that has text scrolling through and it's all in caps with, of course, the war turning into warning. And it says, warning, kids, causing Armageddon can be dangerous. Do not attempt it in your own home. And then as it fades out and zooms out and zooms out and God talks about the theories that uh, have different ideas, how old the earth actually is, we see many theories written out. And there is atheism theory, inflationary universe theory, the creation theory, Big Bang theory, explosion theory, steady state theory, theism theory and string theory. And later on, is with the dinosaurs being a joke that the paleontologists uh, just don't see it. We get three dinosaurs' names only, and that is the Tyrannosaurus, the Velociraptor, and the Gasosaurus. Is that a real one? That is an actual dinosaur. So, yeah, that, of course, is the most relevant parts of the zooming freeze frame. But we also, at the very end of this intro, get a newspaper uh, because that is the newspaper where she reads the horoscope from. And it actually is the horoscope that she reads. Like you can see it on the left side. You sadly cannot really make out any of the other horoscopes because cancer is actually right on top of it. And I am a cancer. So (laughs) I would have loved to read it. Maybe at some point I'm going to be able to pull some stills where I can actually read it. But the right side of the newspaper says, Tedfield runner up for village of the year. And why Tadfield lost again and proposed motorway will no longer run through Tadfield. So those are the important things happening in Tadfield. Great. I love that. The whole idea behind this cold open is the narrator introducing herself, but also introducing us into the universe, which I think is really, really well done. Also, I have to say, at the time of this recording, I have not read any Neil Gaiman-only books, or rather, I haven't finished any of the Neil Gaiman books. I haven't read or finished any of the Sir Terry Pratchett-only ones. What I can tell you with confidence, that having a narrator or a little, uh, in his case, below the line and little notes of author, usually, is a very Terry Pratchett thing. Footnote, thank you. <laughs> so... Footnote tends to be a bit of a narrator voice in the books and having that introduced into this feels already very Terry Pratchett-like and that makes my little fun heart very, very happy because even if you watch any of the renditions, the movie renditions of the Discworld books, you always have a narrator because it's such a huge part of the writing process that Terry had and it's just beautiful to have that and it adds so much detail and it adds so much flashing out to the characters and very fast as well and it works within the format so it's really really nice to see that I really enjoyed the opening segment I'm pretty sure it's more a Terry thing than a Neil thing because it does not feel as familiar to the writing of Gaiman that I'm familiar with especially Mm -hmm. when it comes to like the whole footnote thing Mm. of course 
we can't ignore the fact that God has a female sounding voice and God is spoken by Frances McDormand. She's known for Fargo and she does a lot of voice work. So if you watch like animated movies or series, you might have heard this voice before. She is the mom in The Good Dinosaur and she also has a voice role in Isle of Dogs, one of the saddest movies ever. Most notably for me when looking her up was that she herself is adopted and she also has an adopted child. Oh. Oh, so, that's so nice. And of course, we can't ignore the fact that people were... N- the internet, in some corners, was not happy about the fact that God is a woman. Oh, no. Who had a, who could have seen this coming? Oh, I am shook it to my core. One more thing that I want to point out about this whole monologue opening. There is this beautiful... Again, I know this as a very much Terry Pratchett thing. The comparison that she uses the ineffable game that she's playing feels like a game of poker in a pitch dark room with infinite stakes with a dealer who won't tell you the rules and who smiles all the time again this little thing this putting you completely into the feels and understanding exactly what to expect from that is a very much a Terry Pratchett thing these uh taking something that you can't imagine how to describe really and put it down as the most mundane thing that anybody from a street can empathize with because they probably have played a card game and they understand that if they don't know the rules and it's dark and you know that the dealer, the person running the game is just smiling at you and refuses to tell you. That's a very specific feeling that it kind of creates within you. And I love that this is giving me that. Absolutely. Content-wise, I just have to point out that the mentioned Archbishop James Usher is a real dude. He was born in Dublin in 1581. Oh my god. And he really did claim that the Earth was created on October 23rd, 4004 BC. 9am. I did not find that he claimed the exact time, but there is an actual Usher timeline from back then when random Christians tried to figure out how old the the earth is and of course like nowadays we know better but so this date is not randomly chosen it's an actual thing that someone said yeah that's amazing so yeah which of course means that earth is libra we transition over into eden i know the visual of it's so beautiful i want to make a note for us and Mm -hmm. that is god says it starts as it will end with a garden and it's been a while since I've seen this show, but can we please try to remember that it's supposed to end with a garden? We can remember that, yeah. Good. Write so... it down somewhere. Pin it. Pin it in the Discord, please. And of course, I have to point out that very, very soon, once we get into Eden, we see our very own namesake because we see the apple of truth hanging from the tree. I know. So that made me very, very happy. Ah, uh, yeah. We got the mention. At the very beginning, I think that's a sign that we should cover the whole show. Obviously. Because definitely we sh- we weren't going to do that. This is no, exactly no, like no. we were going to, you know, test drive it on episode one. And then if any of the apples wouldn't show up, we would have dropped it and just move on to something else. 
any of the apples. I'm like, hmm, which other apples? Like that is a whole different universe, but we're not going to get into that. <laughs> If our dear listeners want to know more about the whole leaving Eden, the temptation, the fall, yaddy, yaddy, yaddy. The apple that wasn't an apple. We did a whole coverage of Lucifer and in the bonus material for which you need to be a patron, hint, 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 we do cover quite a lot of the biblical backgrounds for those characters. So we are not going to go into that again. So if you want to listen to all that, please do become a patron and listen to hours upon hours of bonus material. Because all of this is very miraculous anyway, all of the plants in the garden had grown without water because rain hadn't been invented yet as we learn. So it was a nice day and all the days had been nice. Mm -hmm. So apparently Eden does not need rain for all the foliage to actually grow. Yeah. Miracle! They don't need rain to have a river there either, so... Nice. Good. You know, it's called a miracle, yeah. And now we meet our two main characters and <gasps> I love them. I wrote down it's love at first sight and I'm not sure if it, that just applies to me falling in love with them at love at first sight or if they fell in love with each other love at first sight or if just Crowley fell in love with Azarafaelo at first sight. We're just gonna go on record here that nobody needs to at us and claim that this is not a love story. Neil Gaiman has stated repeatedly, this was written as a love story. This was acted as a love story. It is a love story. It period. is. And it's so beautiful. The details. Yes, we can absolutely argue about that. And I have opinions on that. But it is a love story that starts here. Period. And If you have an issue with that, this is not your podcast. True, because I literally did not shut up about it at any scene that they are in. So yeah. you're welcome. Good. This is becoming, uh, this is going to be a very pro-ineffable husband's Yes, exactly. Show. Exactly. Yes. So if you don't like this, this is your moment. Stop listening because you will not enjoy it and we will not enjoy you. Yay. Perfect. Let me talk about the CGI of morphing the snake into Crawley. <laughs> it's terrifying and it's perfect. It's very BBC. Yeah. So that left an impression on me, <laughs> I have to say. <laughs> I know, it's kind of like, it's morphing, it's morphing, but suddenly it's David Tennant. And then he's frozen for like half a second there. It's so... Oh, okay, but I got over this very, very quickly because two things. A, David Tennant has longish red hair, which, yay. Also, if you ever watch Doctor Who, there's the whole thing about being a ginger. Mm, yeah. Second, he has a snake tattoo on the side of his face. That he does. And I love that so, 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 so fucking much. It makes so much sense. Like, if you don't connect the fact that he is the snake, even though you're literally watching him <laughs> transform from a snake into a person, it's just a great reminder. Mm. And it looks cool. And it's great for cosplays. I'm not gonna lie. It looks absolutely amazing. You mentioned that you're not sure if this is love on first sight in both directions or if this is where Crowley falls in love with Aziraphale. I am gonna contest that and I say Crowley is already in love with Aziraphale before this because he already seems to be very familiar with him and know quite a bit about him. And so my headcanon is that Crawley already is in love with Aziraphale at this point, but Aziraphale is not even really aware of Crawley as an entity, basically, as an individual. Until now! Yes. So for me, this is the beginning of a potential 
reciprocation of the interest. I love that we're choosing the biggest words today that we cannot pronounce on both ends. I don't know what you mean. My English is perfect. But that is actually a thing for me through the entire episode. Crawley mm-hmm. seems to know more about Aziraphale. He seems to be more into him. Yes, he's definitely the one who's initiating a lot. I feel like there is a lot of... I think that comes down to Aziraphale's personality because he is very careful about everything and it kind of continues throughout the episode where he's the one who's supposed to be protecting things and he needs to keep things the way they are while uh, Crowley is the one who's seducing yeah. people into sin and also is kind of doing that too as a riffle. But he also seems to know so much more about him and oh, be yeah. able to relate to him so much more. So I find that a very interesting dynamic that I did not pick up on the first watch t- that I did because I just binged all of it. Um, mm. So I'm very curious how that is gonna continue. Mm-hmm. Two questions yes. for this scene. A. Do we just witness the very first killing with yes. Adam slaying the lion off screen? Yes. And that was not actually off screen, I think. No, was we, it off we, screen? We see the him... Slaying, the actual slaying, actually, yeah, that's true. Yeah. So We hear it We in the hear background. it. Okay, so that was the actual first killing. We mm-hmm. are in agreement. Perfect. And the second question is, why is Xerophil protecting Crawley with his wing from the rain? Is it because we're in Africa and the rains are blessed and Crawley is a demon <laughs> who would be tortured by holy water? <laughs> Because Adam and Eve it are is black, now. and so obviously we are in Africa. So it is now. It is that is to officially the facts a and canon. funds connection yes. and everything, which is the only reason why I thought of this. That's all I have for Eden. Now we go into the intro. Oh my god! And what a beautiful intro it is. <sighs> when it comes to the intro, I feel we should save any and all talk about the intro for episode six. Because there are so many references in the intro for every single episode. And the book. And so I feel we should talk about it for episode six and in the book episode. Yes, 100%. I I agree. It's perfect. I didn't write down any details. I just wrote down the songs, the credits, perfect, the cast, the graphic, the details, the Easter eggs. Yeah, perfect. Yep. All of these things. And we're going to talk about every single one of these things from this list. Exactly. At one but point. not before, because we do try to stay remotely spoiler-free. Ta-da! <laughs> and now we move in time to 11 years ago. Oh, yeah. And we go into a little meetup with demons. Yeah, and the demons are named Ligur and Hastur. And so Hastur actually has a literary past, first appearing in Ambrose Bierce's work in 1893. Coincidentally, I did my final school paper on Ambrose Bierce. <laughs> what? Yeah, you did not know that, right? No, um, I didn't know that. He wrote the Devil's Dictionary. And that's what I did my final school paper on. Makes sense. Got basically full marks on it, so. Bragging much? I had points deducted because I had no one to proofread it. And so there were typos in there. So I'm a fucking idiot. I did not find anything on Ligor, except that apparently there is a type of shrimp 
by that name. That's interesting. Yeah. That's uh, also why not? <laughs> Now, what I love about the dynamic of this scene is that we get these. It's a very kind of an old school how we imagine demons. They crawl yes. out of the ground and they're all gross and they have things stuck to them. And Leaker has a frog on his head. Is it a frog? Or I yes. thought it was. It was a chameleon at one point. I thought it was a frog. Surely we'll see him again. But yeah, it might actually be a chameleon because at one point you see the hand move and it's more chameleon than frog. Yeah, yeah. and I yeah, feel like yeah. at one point we we see the tail being like all circly on on the back yeah, of his head. Yeah, I think I think you might be right. It's a chameleon, not a frog. Sorry. Either way, he has an animal stuck. He has a reptilian. It's a very old schooly image of a demon crawling out of hell. Yeah, and also when they talk about their bad deeds, it's very old school. Yeah, but when they talk about I tempted the priest, I put a doubt in the priest's mind. We shall have him in ten years. He could have been a saint. And the other one is like I corrupted a politician, which is yeah. also like yeah, well, great job wow. because that's so difficult to do. Yeah, <laughs> same for the priest. I mean, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> yeah, should have showed them a little boys instead of little girls, but you know. Mm. Here we are. Damn. 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 And of course, compared to that, Crawley, Crawley, I I can't pronounce it. I can't pronounce it correctly because now he's not Crawley anymore. He's now Crawley. It's now with an O. Yeah. So the question is, because in my subtitles, at the beginning, he's spelled with an A. Yes, and at this point he's all on. Yeah, from, from this, this point, point on, he's forward. gonna be spelled with an O. Yes, is that an Amazon fuck up? No, he changes no. his name from the Crawley to Crowley. And I do wonder if this is a deliberate reference to Alistair Crowley. I mean, could be. And I do wonder how is it in the book because With I an o. do not the entire time though, right? No, very very sure. So this is we're going to talk about this in the book yeah, episode. Yeah, we're going we're going to talk about this because like for me I do not trust Amazon subtitles at all. Like there is so like for me this was a typo. I have added this to the book relevant talking points. Very good. So we're going to double lists. check that later. I, good. That's I have that's a question a list thing. and I have a book list. <laughs> Smart. It's like you've done a podcast before. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Was it just me or did seem Crowley drunk or stoned when he starts talking to them? No, I think he's just very disengaged with Blase. this whole situation. Yeah, it feels like because he doesn't realize that this is the Armageddon we're talking about just yet. And nor do we when we are watching this for the first time and haven't yeah. read the book because we didn't find the time to do either of these things. He doesn't realize the significance of this meeting. And for me, from uh, then what you gather about him, he was always very blasé and like yeah. coming up with bullshit type of a thing. I mean, he comes up with great things. I mean, oh, bringing yeah. down all of the mobile lines is absolutely demonic. Now, after that scene when they talk about him making shit up and passing human things, human fuck ups as yeah. in his achievements, do we actually think that that's what he did, or did is he just taking credit? I think he's just taking credit. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, it is ingenious, of course, and it's very modern approach to this. He is very close to humanity, so it's very easy for him to go with the times. Exactly. It does not come very easy to him to lie. I feel like Crowley is a very bad actor, especially later on t- compared to Zerafel acting in front of Gabriel. Yeah, I think he just doesn't 
care enough to come up with a good lie. Well, he does know he has to keep up appearances. So I find it hilarious that Crowley, who would be my assumption is actually the better actor of the two, is the worst actor between Aziraphale and Crowley. I think the difference is that Crowley doesn't mind using his magic, demon magic, to clean up whatever doesn't line up with the humans, you know? No, I mean, when he talks to his demons... When they go like, oh. oh, this is Armageddon. And he's like, yeah, that's totally great. And he's like really doing a shit job oh, about I... pretending to be excited for this. I think in this case, they just cannot tell the difference because they can't differentiate emotions. And he knows it. So he's not putting in an effort. So you think he could do better because then we're going to keep an eye out for that because I actually think he can't. I think that he could do better and I'm basing it on the nanny because he's an incredible nanny. Not compared to Aziraphale. Aziraphale goes the extra mile with the changing and everything. So Yeah, I think Aziraphale though, again, cares more about appearances and puts more effort into these things. You say it's an effort thing, I say it's an ability thing. Okay, we'll see how it's going to pan out throughout the show. But yes, let's just hold on to our predictions yep. right now and we'll see how it goes. We'll see how it goes. At some point he gets the basket and he leaves. And he leaves with the most hip-centered walk I have ever <laughs> seen. I mean... Uh, wow. <laughs> listen, if you don't find this sexy, who even are you? It's not just about it being sexy. It's just like everything about him. He's so lanky. He's so <laughs> all limbs and joints and everything. It's oh, incredible. It's so it's so, so good. Yeah. Of course, we need to mention this is the first time that we hear the Bohemian Rhapsody by Queen. Who? I know. You will eventually learn more in the bonus segments about Queen because obviously they're so unknown and so uh, you know. And you know nothing. Like yeah, it's they're they're very niche. No, not niche. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. They're very niche. Like it's very. Yeah. You, you have nobody to really, really know knows you. them. Yeah. We, we're gonna have to really <laughs> dive into into the internet to find information about them. Mm. So uh, yeah, we hear the first song that is by them, and there is gonna be plenty more. There's gonna be one more in this episode. It is the Bohemian Rhapsody which is one of the best songs of all times. And this is not just my opinion, okay? I mean, it is my opinion, but it's not just my opinion. I think that the entire world can agree that the Bohemian Rhapsody is one of the biggest masterpieces of modern music. Stop hiding behind a microphone, okay? I really love Queen. And yes, I agree that it is a really good song. <laughs> I just and don't... And it's also very important to the cultural development of certain time. We'll talk about all of this. Yes, we will talk about this when we talk about this. Because that's how we do. <laughs> we are in the car and the car radio is on. We transition over into the sushi place and holy shit, this scene makes me want to eat sushi so badly. It looks amazing. First of all, it looks amazing, but this is going to be one of many, many, many praises that I will sing to not just David Tennant, but also Michael Sheen and this in this specific moment, Michael Sheen. The way he acts as Azarafel is absolutely incredible because he gives you the feeling that you can smell the sushi. He gives you the feeling... <laughs> <laughs> that you're about to taste it. Like just, you can read all of that excitement and deliciousness and the smell and everything from his face. And it's absolutely incredible to watch. And God, I love him so much. He's such a good actor. Right next to Zerafel, there is someone in a suit showing up. And that is Gabriel, who is played by John Hamm. And I love 
John Hamm. Honestly, the casting in this show. I want a bear hug from John Hamm. Like that would be, mm-hmm. yeah. He is such a cool dude as well. Like he's an amazing actor, but he seems like do you know one of those cool people that you really want to hang out with. <laughs> it's like you know life and. We could like sit and jam together. And so Gabriel shows up to tell Aziraphale that basically the end times are upon us. At this point, John Hamm says one of the most beautiful sentences of this entire episode. When Azarafel offers him the sushi. No, no. When Azarafel offers him a cup of tea, he looks at him with so much despise and says, I do not sully the temple of my celestial body with gross matter. And the way he says it, the accent that he he says it in everything that the way he puts that sentence out there it was it made it brought me so much joy honestly Ugh. plus the fact that he might not put anything in that celestial body but he sure as heaven will clad it in the human style clothing he loves the clothes and i mean he does look great then we have that whole nice setup about crowley being on earth for a very long time and gabriel saying oh miracle he hasn't spotted you yet miracles is what we do miracles is what we do which obviously at this point we already know that that's not true obviously because they have already met centuries, centuries, centuries ago. But we also therefore now know that neither side is aware of their relationship. Both sides are idiots and both sides are dicks, which is wonderful because yay, once again, angels are dicks. And now we move on to the big plot point that's going to start out and kick off our entire apocalypse. The main focus of our episode. We are on the road. We have one small car with a couple. The woman being in the final throes of pregnancy. They're being overtaken by our caravan, basically, of more important people, in quotation marks. And I absolutely adore those parent pairings. Yes. And Nick Offerman, as an oh. absent politician dad-to-be, oh. is incredibly perfect. Love of my life. I literally <laughs> really? love Nick Offerman in every single thing that he's ever done. <laughs> I did not is... know that you were such a Nick Offerman stan. Have you ever seen Parks and Rec? Not in its entirety, no. We have talked about this uh, repeatedly. Ever since... I watched that multiple times in a row. (sighs) Nick Offerman is incredible. He shows up in The Good Place at some point. He shows up in The Good Place. He shows up in Brooklyn Nine-Nine. He shows up in this. He has so many tiny little roles sprinkled across everything that I've ever seen in my life. (laughs) And the one massive thing that he's done is Parks and Rec. And he is excellent in it. The way he gives so much background and and a feel of a character in short moments in all these other shows is... We're basically just his face in the screen. Yeah, he is incredible. Like, how is he so good and so impactful in this episode when he's on a screen in a screen? Well, he also is basically a parody of a Republican, so... Of course. That's another thing, but let's not talk about politics. As if we ever did that. We go to the convent and I have to say I am a bit disappointed in the nuns because you'd think, given that this is their one reason of existing as an order that they might have actually practiced this in the past. I think they may have. No. But nobody actually counted on, what was her name? Sister Margaret is the one who fucks it up? No, no. It's the... 
Where's my affected funds? Loquacious. Yeah, she has a first name. Mary or Mariah. Mary, Mary. One is Mary, one is Mariah, one is something else. Margaret. One of them is Margaret, I'm pretty sure. Probably. I think that they practiced it and everybody had a role in it, but they did not count in that one human factor. They knew that she is very incompetent and if they had practiced this for centuries, which they should, they would have a contingency plan for incompetent sisters. I mean, the contingency plan was go get biscuits. Yeah, which is a sad excuse for a contingency plan. They're never good planners. Like, they're not known for being good planners. Neither is hell, apparently. Which is disappointing. I expect more from my satanic orders. (laughs) I have to do a tiny devils in the details because the Mother Superior is wearing the sigil of Lucifer from the 16th century as a pendant. And since that sigil never once showed up in Lucifer, I kind of have to cover it now. It's the actual satanic sigil, right? No, it's not. No, no, no. So Lucifer and Satanism only loosely connected, as you should remember from my previous Devils in the Details. Well, I know that, yeah. This is literally called the Sigil of Lucifer. It's, I think I know which one it is. If you Google Sigil of Lucifer, this is what you see. Because it's literally called that. Images. Yes, that is what I thought it was. Yes. It's from the 16th century. And the overall design of the sigil is a chalice, which represents creation, Mm -hmm. the fertile darkness awaiting and ready for untold possibility. It must be pointed out that this sigil is an instrument to invoke Lucifer. And since Lucifer is considered to be the bearer of light and wisdom into the darkness. So when you invoke the sigil, you bring light and wisdom into darkness. <laughs> the X over the sigil indicates the power and realm of the physical plane. It's passion and sensuality that drives all entities. The inverted triangle represents water, often referred to as the original elixir of ecstasy, without which physical life could not exist. The V at the bottom of the sigil represents the duality of all things, dark and light, male and female, and the power of convergence of the two into one manifesting balance, creation and existence. So, yeah, now you know what this uh, symbol stands for. Finally, lovely. (laughs) And there is not only the sigil of Lucifer there, there is also a very, very present statue behind the nuns. Did you notice that statue? I noticed at one point that there is... They were doing a panning over it. There was something with eating, something eating, something else. It's a very muscular dude who's fighting with a snake, basically. Oh, it wasn't snake, yes. And I was like, okay, this has to be a famous statue. This has to be a famous statue. I feel like I recognize this. And apparently, according to some bonus material, this is a custom-built statue for the show. And they were, like, intending some stuff. But I actually agree with several posts on Reddit and the likes. That's bullshit because it's very obviously based on Lao Kun and his sons. And in my notes, there is a link to that whole backstory because it's a lot. Mm. And if I go into the detail here, we're here for another hour. So if you want to read up on the whole struggling with a sea serpent with the dude and his sons, do click on my link in my notes. But all in all, about this scene, I don't even have to say all that much because I love the switcheroo shenanigans. It's so good. It's very well done. The pace is fun. It's interesting. It's funny without being cringy. The characters, even though they are all very one-dimensional within the Covenant, Mm -hmm. are still interesting and likable enough. 
or at least hilarious. So I am basically on board with the entire switcheroo thing. Mm-hmm. And once again, once again, ha. Huh? <laughs> wow. Once again, once yes. Again. Um, and once again, I have to say, Nick Offerman is such a perfect cliche Republican because he oh. has a regular Y chromosome son. Oh my God, yes. Which just, it killed me. It fucking killed me. He is such a fucking Republican. The way he presents it as well, it's just all absolutely fucking perfect. In the, about the middle of the scene where we get all the players in the building just awaiting Crowley to arrive with the Antichrist. And he dra- drives in and the second of the two Queen songs of this episode is playing as he's parking up in the front of the convent. And it is, it's a hard life. Well, it is a hard life. <laughs> I think, again, they choose the best songs at the perfect times, which I we will talk about eventually in, in the s- specific moments, in the specific episodes. But at this point, this is the second time we have a Queen song and it's absolutely perfect and on point. It seems to be a thing with the shows we covered that they pick and choose and place their songs very deliberately very and very perfectly. Yes. We have something representing the situation so we understand it better. So the way we at the beginning had the poker play, now we have a little card play. Some might say that God might be slightly obsessed with cards. I mean, the switcheroo thing is also something that you do with like the hats and the pearl. Like where where does it go? So yeah, this is a very well-known game Mm -hmm. and it's very easy to lose track once you stop paying attention. Exactly. But so here we have child A, child B, and uh, the Antichrist, basically. The adversary destroyer of kings, angel of bottomless pit, prince of this world, and lord of darkness. Yes. (laughs) And so there are a few names that are recommended to both sets of parents, obviously, since the nuns believe both of those kids are the adversary. Mm -hmm. And they recommend Damien, which I already referenced in my facts and funds. Our incompetent nun also recommends Cain, which hilarious. Because Arthur asks for a traditional name, like old, proper old name. So Cain, if you want to know about Cain, I did a Devils in the Details when we covered Lucifer, obviously. The competent nun recommends Warlock, which for some reason is accepted and I don't get it. Yeah, because she's American. The woman is American and Americans are weird. They name their babies apples and oranges and west and east and north and south. After cities and weekdays. I can understand cities, but all the other like fruits and vegetables, that's wild to me. I think Warlock is, is actually quite fine and fair because it's actually like a historic name. Why is a fruit worse than a flower? Depends what flu- what fruit and what flower. See? So it's not bad naming your kids after fruit. I mean, yeah, maybe, sure. maybe just call your name a banana. Banana! Peach is a perfectly fine name. Is it? Yes. Princess fucking Peach. Does that make it okay? Yes. How dare. I don't know. Okay. How dare. Salad. Salad is not a fruit. (laughs) Or vegetable. Salad is a group of foods. Fine. It's like Call your child tomato if you want. Yeah, shorten it to Tommy. Or tomato if you're in America. Yeah, shorten it to Tommy. Where's the fucking problem? You're you're being very judgy. I feel it's enough to be judgy about why would you name your kid Warlock? 
I think that naming a child warlock is more adequate than naming your child Apple. Okay, we have to agree to disagree because otherwise it's going to take forever. Obviously, our actual adversary gets blessed with the name Adam because it's an old name and it's neither here nor there mm-hmm. for either side, I feel. Yeah. So it's actually a really, really good pick. I'm pretty sure I also did a difference in the details about Adam with Lucifer. So go listen to that. <laughs> <laughs> if you can find it. Uh, last season somewhere. Was it in the last season? Yeah, because Adam shows up in last season. Oh. If you remember. No, it's all such a blur. Of course I remember. Jesus. <laughs> it's not been that long. I mean, we did take a break and then everything just gets deleted in the brain. Mm. And a hard drive. Uh, you better not, woman. How dare. Um, uh, no. That's all I have for this convent scene. Next up, we meet up. Again, I noted that the whole positioning and having the narrator helps us so much to get through a scene like this, which I believe it would be really, really difficult to convey this in such a short time, this amount of information. The exposition is much easier when you have an omniscient narrator. Exactly. And it's really, really well done. And for example, the wink situation is so good because you get both sides played out. The wink situation is so good. Like, seriously? Yeah. Like, it's acted really, really well on both sides. It's written really, really well. The fact that we have the The narrator and everything is just really, really good. And that's one of my favorite moments in this episode. The wink. Also, it's really bad winks. Like it's like oh the, yeah, uh, it's like wow, overacted winks. Yeah, very hidden. Very uh, how do you call how do you call it? Oh my god, I don't have words today. I don't know what you're trying to say. Inconspicuous. Yeah, so much very for saying the big big words that you don't know how to pronounce. Exactly. <laughs> I can say inconspicuous. Anything else for the convent right now? No. Good. No. So Crawley is leaving and now he obviously wants to reach out to Aziraphale, but he can't because the phone lines are down. And I absolutely fucking love this because it doesn't matter if it is actually his own fault that they're down, but he took credit for it. He's fucked because of what he supposedly caused himself. And I love this. This is cosmic justice, so to say. Yes, it's perfect. However, he manages to reach Azrafel. Yeah, from a fucking phone booth. How yeah, old? Those things still exist. I actually just noted one the other day in Dublin. I was passing it by on a, on a bus and I was like, oh, these things still exist. But they said a meeting and then we get this whole thing about secret agents feeding the ducks which is absolutely excellent I would like to point out at this point that I have sat on that bench and I have pictures of myself on that bench when have you fed the ducks no because that's a bad thing you don't give birds bread because you're not a secret agent had you said yes then now we would have known that you're a secret agent I did not hesitate in my answer And also, yes, please do not feed ducks bread. Exactly. We can go there next time we're in London together. We shall do that. They're sitting there. Aziraphale makes a very meta comment because he talks about Armageddon being a cinematic show, which is basically what we are watching. True that. So I very much enjoyed this meta fourth wall commentary. 
Also, have you noticed that all the other people on the benches around them are like very government type people just standing there staring in, in like ahead of themselves, definitely not making eye contact with anybody? Everyone else is a secret agent. I love that so much. Never mind. No, that that is like that is the actual observation of the scene. Like everyone else is a secret agent except them. I feel validated in this scene once again that Crowley knows more about Aziraphale than the other way around because he knows exactly how to play him mm-hmm. when he says, let's have lunch. Oh, that's true. And then they talk about how he owes him one from the time in Paris. And then we get a mention of uh, seven, something in 17th century, 1785. But also food, because also that food. is what Aziraphale remembers. And I'm going to claim that Crowley actually did remember from when he owed him one. But he lets Aziraphale be the one to remember it. Because it will bring the memory back stronger of the food. Yeah. And so we go to lunch. And like I said before, this is where I first noticed Crowley drinks, but he never eats. And this is something I remember is consistent. But of course, this time I'm going to pay extra attention to it. And this is the moment when I was like, oh, he's watching him eat. It's so cute. And then I went into a brain breakdown saying, um... I do ship them so hard. Also, it's so gay. Like, I feel like it's it's more... I don't I, I don't know any straights who enjoy that much enjoyment in their partner. So for me, this is a very <laughs> gay thing. Interesting. I didn't think of that. Maybe I just don't know as happy straight couples as I know <laughs> queer couples. Maybe that's also saying something, but... You clearly surround yourself by gay and jolly people, which is technically the same thing. No. <laughs> No, strike that. Um, (laughs) We leave lunch very quickly. It's a very, very short moment. And then we walk down the streets. And I have to say again, the way David Tennant walks as Crowley is incredible. Also, how did he get into those pants? Those (laughs) pants are so tight. Did you notice that? Oh, my God. No, I didn't, actually. It's... For me, I don't really notice that much, that detail. I see it, but it's such a part of the character for me that... If the pants weren't this tight, you would not see how lanky his legs movement are, which is why I noticed how tight his pants are. Because he's all limps. He's all limps and hips and knees and... And the hips don't lie, baby. Oh, his... his, Wow. But I seriously want to know how the fuck did you get into those pants? Like, wow. I love the way he walks because it's just such a trait of Crowley's that it just pushes the character slightly over the edge. Like, if he starts walking differently, I'm going to be like, the fuck is happening? Of course, Xerophel protests that Crowley is one of the evil ones and he goes, get thee behind me. And it's just, he's so cute. And then he goes after you. To me, Aziraphale is the cute one and Crowley is the hot one, you know? Oh, so you see me as a cute person and not as a hot person. If that's your takeaway. Well, you said that I'm more of a Aziraphale than No, than I Crowley, see. So. I, I said that cosplaying, I see you more for Aziraphale. That is not okay. a character judgment. Okay. Good Lord. <laughs> No, it's just like, you know, trying to get deep into this conversation. Maybe because I've never seen you walk being all limbs. <laughs> Maybe yeah. use that. Mm, mm, mm. Uh-huh, we'll see about uh-huh, that. We'll uh-huh. see about that. 
Shut it. Okay, we go into the bookstore. They're drunk. We go into the bo- bookstore. They're drunk. They can't say booyah base. Can you say booyah base? Booyah base. Good. Fish stew. I'm very sober. Now they talk about whales and dolphins and krakens. And I love that they're the anti-us because they are trying to say the big words. But when they realize they can't do it, they start avoiding them. <laughs> we never do that. <laughs> Unlike us, because we never avoid the big words. We always try to pronounce them. You listeners might not always notice because we very often actually, after 15 different tries, manage to pronounce it correctly. And then through the magic of editing... Because we you actually know. edit our podcast. I know. Unlike others. Unlike a lot of others. No shade. All the shade. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Now the library is closed, but <laughs> the bookshop is open. No, it's not. It's also closed. <laughs> Speaking of stuff they can't say, did you notice that Aziraphale can't say disobey about his own behavior? Oh, yes. And that is not because he's drunk. That's because it's a bad word for him. Yeah, he's not able to actually say that. He can't even say it. Not just not do it, but he can't even pronounce it. Mm. Speak it into being. Mouth it out. It's incredible. It's so, it's such a wonderful character detail. Mm. Mm -hmm. I love it. At some point, they decide, or Aziraphale decides that he can't deal with this being drunk. And as funny as it is on one level, it's actually really, really disgusting the way they sober up. Listen, they will never run out of the good wine, right? The idea of it is so gross to me. It is, unfortunately. In and out and in and out. And so I kind of wonder what is the concept behind it? Are they reversing the having drunk it as if it never happened? Or are they removing the... Uh, the molecules from their vessels back into the containers. I think it's the latter. And the reason I so think that gross. is because, oh yes, it's so much more gross. But we see Crowley go, yeah, with his Did they mouth, have an aftertaste? Which feels to me like he has a dry mouth, which means that he's slightly hungover. Which makes it even more gross. Uh, so, ugh, yeah. Yep. But that also would be a question for me to put on the list. Oh, yeah. Put it on the list, baby. Good. Perfect. 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 Wonderful. And now we need to wrap up the convent. In the best way. We cut back to the hospital and Hastur comes back to the scene of a crime. He decides to just murder everybody. Has a demon, very menacing, old school demon behavior. Absolutely perfect and on brand for Hastur. I mean, what did they expect working for demons? They really should have known better. And this is another hint for me that they did not practice because they are actually not the smartest order. Nobody ever said that they're the smartest order. Yeah, but that's why I say they did not proper practice. They did not. Like, if you and me had, if you and me were running that order, nothing would have gone wrong. (laughs) That is not wrong. However, this is something that we can get more into detail in the book episode because I believe yeah. there is oh, yeah. way more information yeah, yeah. on the chattering order there, if I remember correctly. But for now, yes, you're absolutely right. <laughs> but it makes complete sense to me that they're just very chattering and scattering. What? Chattering and scattering? Ooh, nice. There is one moment in this scene that made me legit laugh out loud. Like he kills one nun and then he goes like, well, you can just like stand here or you could tell everyone else to get out or just have them perish in the fire. And she goes, what fire? And boom, fire starts. And that was just like, wow. Great moment. And then we come back for the last time to the bookshop where we have Azrafel 
and Crowley sobered up, debating what they're going to do about the situation. And Crowley is just really good at tempting people into doing things. Because he knows how to play him. He really knows him well. He knows in general how to play humans and people with human ten tendencies. However, I believe that he is doing th this not just for his own good, but also for Azrafo's good. Well, I think there is both the egotistical aspect of him not wanting Earth to end and him not wanting his relationship to Aziraphale to end and also yes. him genuinely enjoying seeing the joy in Aziraphale. So he does it for both their goods. Exactly. Which is beautiful. And he's such a seductress. For me, this is a very healthy way of showing love because selfless and selfish love both have their issues. And this is the perfect balance because his mm -hmm. love is both selfish and selfless. And I feel like that is actually the good approach. It's a great balance. Yeah. And at this point, they decide to be the Godfathers, which is very cute. Hilarious that Crowley is actually the one to call themselves Godfathers, because it's not really a word you would expect a demon to use. And then obviously Aziraphale goes, well, I'll be damned! And not realizing what he just said, and Crowley trying to make a joke out of it, but Aziraphale having a quite hard time laughing about this. It's not as bad once you get used to it. We are now going into the dressing up part of mm -hmm. Aziraphale Five being the gardener and Crowley being the nanny. For some reason, IMDb references Mrs. Doubtfire here because a man dressing up as a female nanny with a Scottish accent. To me, Tennant as a nanny gave me more Willem Dafoe in The Boondock Saints. <laughs> Have okay. you watched that? No. Okay. Dear listeners, if you watched that, please let me know if you get where I'm coming from, because that was the feeling that I got. Okay. I love the costumes, and I love how much care Azrafel puts into this. Yeah! He changed his whole face! Yeah! Crowley put on lipstick, and that's it! He changed his hairstyle. He put on dress. It's minimal compared to the amount of change that Aziraphale went through. Again, I'm talking about the amount of effort that is put into it. Yeah, he didn't even change his voice. He didn't need to. Mm. Well, I'm not gonna shit on him because the song he sings is great. Yeah, exactly. Let's actually talk about the song very, very briefly. I don't really have m notes on this because there's nothing to add. In my opinion, the Nanny Lullaby is one of the best things ever. It's so perfect to me. The lyrics, it's the way it's sang. It's such a clean voice from David Tennant. Like, also, I was surprised that he sings this way, but simultaneously, I was not surprised at all. I have never heard David Tennant sing in any other context, so I did have no expectations, but it really fit well for a lullaby. Mm -hmm. This kid is gonna get a severe twist in his psyche growing up like this. Because he mm -hmm. is literally being pulled in two directions. And so later on, I will comment on his character. I don't blame him for turning out the way he did. Oh yeah, for sure. The way they help with this education is very contradicting. And with those parents and those probably yeah contrasting influences, he yeah. did not really have many chances. Yeah, <laughs> talk about nature versus nurture. Yeah. Now we get all of these and now we have to put in the progress 
reports. Reports! Report! We see this amazing, as they call it, the main entrance to... It's so beautiful. ...their respective heaven or hell. It's so well done. I love the way that it's a shared entrance. You just... One goes up and one goes down. It's the same thing, just the other side of the yes. fucking coin. It's just so visually beautiful as well. And it's really well done visually and te- storytelling-wise. Mm-hmm. For me, the most important thing is we get reconfirmation that both sides are fucking dicks because the angels... Indeed. Are will be most understanding when you fail. Exactly when, not if, when. In hell, the demons are being demons. For me, the most relevant part in hell is that there's a sign on the wall that says, please do not lick the walls. <laughs> oh my God, I didn't see that. That's great. So <laughs> it, that reminds me, like put a sign like that in a D&D game and guess what any of my characters will do. They will lick the walls because if there is a sign there, you need to do the exact opposite. And if there's a button, you need to push it. That is totally Obviously, that's duh. how it works. We also get that whole climb every mountain multiple times throughout the episode. Like at one point, Crowley says you could, you will literally be able to climb every single mountain. Mm. And it's just, oh, I can understand why Azarafel is not happy with the idea of listening to that for the rest of his life. I can't comment on that because I am not familiar enough with the movie or the songs. So I only know that the main actress in Sound of Music is amazing. The little I know of this is, except for some of the lyrics, including these, is it is considered a very kitsch thing. Kitsch. Kitschy. There is, I think, like in German, it's a very similar meaning. It's very, very overplayed for its thing. It's very, like, made to be likable type of a thing. So, uh, you know, it's a little bit too... It's sugary sweet. Mainstream. Yeah, it's a little bit too much. From from what I know from the context of the of the scene, it's hokey. But I actually, hokey. Okay, let's go with that. So yeah, that's about everything I know of this. We'll see how it goes. But that is all I have for those two. Uh, yeah. Reporting moments. Yeah, we get that little meetup after the reporting on the top of the double decker, where Azrafel points out that the boy is too normal. Too normal is a thing. Yeah, in this universe. Yeah, which should have been a red flag for them. There were many things. Yeah, yeah. But Crowley obviously thinks that this is due to their competence because he is very... I don't think he actually thinks that. I think he's trying to calm Aziraphale down because he does not want Aziraphale to feel bad or stressed or anything. Like he's he's doing the best mm-hmm. to make his honey feel good. Okay. To me, it was more like we are that good <laughs> and he truly believes it. So... I don't think Crowley is as self-assured as he presents. Presents himself. And when he does the false bravado, he does it more for Aziraphale's sake than his own when it's just the two of them. It's different when there's the other demons and shit, but when it's just the two of them, I feel it's mostly for for Aziraphale to make him feel secure. Okay. Now we are moving finally to present day. To Monday, six days until the end of the world. Hey, counting them already. So I wrote down the room number. Was it Monday or the Wednesday? No, it's Monday. Wednesday is the next one. Oh, okay. Dude, Monday was the first day, so the world needs to end on the Sunday. So that of makes course, sense, actually. Come yeah, on. Please. Get with the program, Vero. Get with the Bible, Vero. Yeah, I mean, it's not like you had to listen to six seasons of me covering 
faux Christian stuff. Uh, I'm already in the next scene. I don't know what she's talking about. Related to all of this. So for some reason, I thought that the room number was going to be super relevant where the hellhound is in. So I wrote it down. It's 2549. I don't think the number is any relevance. I'm sure, 100% sure it is definitely relevant to something. But we don't know the context. I did not find any context. Yeah, it's probably the fucking childhood address of Sir Terry Pratchett or something like that. Dear listeners, if anyone can tell us why the room is 2549, please do so. I did not find anything. Fun fact for the credits. The demon that they toss in the room with the hellhound is literally named Disposable Demon. I noticed that because Amazon gives you the names of the characters if you stop the episode. So I stopped it to make some notes. <laughs> I just saw Disposable Demon. <laughs> like, Yeah, really? I love that. I fucking love that. I only have very few things to say in the Monday scenes. Okay. One, Warlock is an incredibly entitled little shit. Of course he is. He's the son of the ambassador. We also see that Crowley now has short hair and I'm very, very sad. Even though it looks great, I really like the long hair. Mm -hmm. If naming the Hellhound is as relevant a catalyst, why was it not part of the plan to make the boy phobic of dogs. Because Crowley forgot about the Hellhound. Forgot to tell Azraf all the, whole, the whole time. So he legit because... forgot about the whole naming the Hellhound? Because yep. in my opinion, one of the easiest ways to thwart this plan would have been to make Warlock terrified of dogs. So if the Hellhound shows up, he would simply be too terrified to name him. Mm -hmm. That is actually really smart. No, you're right. He completely actually forgot. Yeah, I think Crowley was like, didn't I tell you that? Second to last, the whole let's kill Warlock to save all of life is a very classic... Trolley problem. Save one or save everyone. Like, uh, mm -hmm. the good for the many, the good of the one few. One life against the universe. And so this is a very, very classic philosophical issue. True that. And if this episode had not been as well as it is, and if we were still doing our old methods and segments, this is actually something that I would consider for my devils in the details and probably need four hours to cover it. <laughs> yeah, one of the 50 things that you came up with over the course of this episode. But yeah, this is the classic trolley problem. I love it. Do you kill one person that you to, to save yeah. the humanity? And lastly, final the proof door. that Crowley is utterly, utterly in love with Aziraphale is how much he hates seeing him doing magic because he is so bad at it. And he does not want him to make a fool of himself. I think he's just, they're bickering like an old married couple at that point already. And I just love that moment so much, yeah. For, for me, it felt that Crowley does not want Aziraphale to do magic in front of other people because he knows how bad he is at this. And he does not want him to have the bad experience. And also be embarrassed by proxy is part of it, for sure. <laughs> Again, selfless and selfish. Exactly, at both the same sides. Time. And yeah. so this, for me, is this final moment. If you were in doubt that that Crowley is absolutely in love with Aziraphale, this is the final moment where you have to be on board that at least in one direction, there is all the love. I mean, if you weren't convinced by the way he was looking at him at the lunch, I don't think that we have anything to talk about. But yes. So, yeah. And this is all I have for Monday. <laughs> to me... <laughs> 
Azraful doing human magic is the best thing since the beginning of the world. It's so Azraful. It's, it's so perfect. perfect. Yeah, it's so him. I couldn't get him to do anything better to show his character and the way he Also that he's so bad at it. How much he loves, yeah, and how much he loves humanity and how much he enjoys the little things that humanity brings. It just all like shown through this uh, ability that he does not have. So Aziraphale is the angel who's in love with humanity. Oh my god. Which well, is the reason why we have this super good charity well, shirt where Castiel and Aziraphale get paired up because those are the two angels in love with humanity. Well, yeah, there's your connection to Supernatural. You found it. As if we could ever talk about anything without accidentally bringing up Supernatural or Buffy or Hamilton. I actually have not referenced Buffy today. You brought up Hamilton. You brought up <laughs> Lemis. So I'm, I'm actually... No, you brought up Le- you brought up Lemis and oh, then yeah, I sorry, reacted to sorry. it. Okay, so you brought up Hamilton. I brought up Lemis. So now I have brought up Supernatural. Um, yeah. I mean... So it's my turn to bring something up. Yeah. Perfect. Wink, wink. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to let that stand there. That's what she said. <laughs> We do see the magic performance and it is as bad as feared. It's so good. And as much as I hate kids and as much as I want to say that those kids are dicks because they are, they are also right. He is really bad at this. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But there's no surprise. Like he just is so enthusiastic. He has the time of his life. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Is it? And Crowley is there for him. Also, I would like to point out that I absolutely adore Crowley's watch. I was about to say the same thing. If that is an actual watch, can someone please I, send me a link? I want yes, this. Yes, I want it too. Like, and I, I don't wear even it. wear watches, but I would wear this. So, the kids are dicks, but they're right. And because they are right, they get rewarded with one of the best activities for an outside birthday party. A fucking food fight. And it's incredible. So, Azarafel and Crowley walk away from the party... Without spotting the dog. And we do see one actual miracle because Aziraphale had a dove shoved into his coat pocket and the dove died. But he's an angel, so he just performs a short miracle and the dove is happy and flies away. Aww. And you can see Crowley clocking it and not saying anything. He's like, you really should. You can see in his eyes, I should, he shouldn't be doing this, but it makes him happy. Yeah, but it's, it's my honey. So it's okay. It's my honey. They get into the car. They realize after a call from hell that the dog didn't show up because this Did you is... clock the name who they call? No. Dagon, Lord of the Files. Oh, Lord of the Files. Yes. Instead of Lord of the Flies. Yeah. I fucking lost my shit. That was pretty great. I'm so, like, seriously, so, some of this writing is so fucking funny. It is very, very good. But after the phone call, they finally realized that they got the wrong boy. Wrong boy! Because the right boy is in the woods. And we did have a very, very quick cut to Adam's house slightly earlier in the scene where we see his birthday cake being finished up by his mom and his dad show up, shows up and stuff. Did did you clock, by the way, that his dad, uh, the actor, was in Doctor Who? I knew it, but I don't remember who he actually is. And supposedly, one of the license plates, and I didn't spot it, but I read it on IMDb, reads TARDIS backwards. And I think it might be Adam's dad's car. It's 
possible. So it's deliberate. Yeah. I love Adam's parents because they are they are nice, normal parents. They seem to care for their son as parents should. They're not the bad kind of parents as Warlock has with the absentee dad and the not as engaged mom. And so, of course, we learn that Adam on his birthday is out with his friends in their hiding place, in their hideout or whatever that's called that he found that he built them and with them and speaking of them that is also their name they call themselves the them and i mean that is a fucking perfect name for a group i absolutely fucking love it it is incredible yeah sad to say my groups never had names so kind of jelly Aww. But Adam talks to his friends and his friends talk to him. And there are some very interesting tidbits there. Like we have Pepper being very offended by the fact that she got a girl bike when she asked for a very mm, specific yeah. type of bike. They are showing off the kids' characters quite well and quite fast. Yeah. So we learn about Adam, Pepper and Wensleydale, but we don't really learn much about Brian, I feel. Which is fine because like this is the first time we meet them. But mostly we learn about Adam and Adam wants a dog. And I kind of mm-hmm. felt bad for the hellhound because the hellhound shows up as this ginormous dog. And then I know, you it's hear so perfect. And then you hear Adam say that no, he doesn't want a big dog. And you have like the, the hellhound right like mm? and it's like oh poor Bigby I'm so sorry no you don't have to be sorry he is made to be to his master's image yeah so at this still. point he's like oh what's what's happening what's happening but the second he changes into the dog oh yeah do- into dog into dog <laughs> He is the happiest. He's a very cute dog. He's a very, very cute dog. And I love him. Before we actually wrap this up, there is the final scene. Mm-hmm. Because they think that they have lost. They are drinking once again, which... Indubitably. Uh, which is... Uh, indubitably. Yes. Uh, all the big words. <laughs> and I very much enjoy it. Oh, the best moment is when Crow is like, hmm. I smell something. And smell something. And Azrafa is like, oh yeah, I changed my aftershave. It's like, no, I know how you smell. Like, of course you do, It's baby. so gay. It's, seriously, it's so gay. That is it's, so gay. If anybody had any doubts about that situation, you cannot anymore. Yeah. Like after this episode, which is why when we started this episode, I said, and you agreed... If you are not on board of the ineffable husbands, this is not for you. This show is not for you. And, and this podcast is not for you. I mean, also, well, I'm not going to forbid that. anyone from watching the show, but this podcast is not for you. Yeah, so, indeed. And <laughs> as they say, welcome to the end times. Fuck yeah. What an end to an episode. But before we actually end, we have to <sighs> wrap this up for ourselves. I know. I almost forgot that we did final thoughts. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> I mean, I wrote mine today. So <laughs> It was such a strong opening episode. It was packed with composition, yet very easy to follow. As we mentioned, that's thanks to our god narrator. We get plenty of little jokes. Stakes are extremely high with the Armageddon in motion and all that. But most importantly, the angel and the demon were made for each other. As I surely mentioned during the episode, the casting of the show is impeccable. And as someone who read the book, I sure appreciate the details that went into making it. In short, I cannot wait for more. I actually had forgotten that episode one gives us not only all the backstory... 
but also puts us already on Wednesday of the final week. Yep. So we got five episodes for the final four days. Wow. Yep. Personally, I really like the setup with both factions being very obvious sticks and the two individuals from each faction we actually get to know being very atypical for an angel and for a demon. Like I said, I watched this back when it all came out in one go and back then I had not realized how well Crowley seems to know Aziraphale. So I'm going to keep my eye on their relationship. Just in case I haven't made it clear enough. Don't come at me. It's a relationship. They're in love. Neil said so. He wrote as a love story. It's a love story. They acted it. Go away. (laughs) From the bits that we do see of Warlock, I really don't like him. Even though I don't blame him for being the way he is. And I very much hope that we do not see much more of him now that we know he's not the Antichrist. (laughs) I am not sure about Adam yet. He does seem a bit, things will happen in the way I say. Which is not the nicest character quality to have and it's very dangerous. Personally, Mm -hmm. I heavily relate to Pepper with her utter disdain (laughs) for everything girly because I was that when I was her age. I was completely that. Let's see how it goes. I saw so much more while taking notes for this episode than I did when I watched this casually while binging it and I actually enjoyed this episode a lot more when taking notes. And I already loved the show when I binged it, so I can't wait to love it even more. And with this, we say thank you for listening. If you want to follow us on social media, you can find us as The Apple of Truth on Twitter and Instagram. We will keep you updated if and when Twitter crashes and burns. You can also send us your comments and complaints to goodomens at taot-podcast.com. If you want to get that sweet, sweet extra content, early episode release and more, like six seasons of another show more, head to patreon.com slash taotpodcast. And if you like what you hear please do write us a positive itunes review they help a ridiculous amount and don't forget to pester all your friends about us thank Thank you you. Bye. bye